Welcome to the Rare Sense Podcast. This is Chris Irwin. Today I'm speaking with Tim Cruikshank. Tim is a retired Navy SEAL with an extensive and diverse military and civilian medicine background, spanning over 30 years. He now works as a full-time physician's assistant. He's also spent over a decade as a caregiver, navigating his wife's cancer diagnosis and treatment. This personal experience, combined with his professional expertise, has given him a unique perspective on our healthcare system that, in my estimation, is vital for people to hear. It aligns with the conclusions I've come to through my journey. Even though the opinions he expresses here don't represent official guidance, I feel his credentialing still gives them authority beyond my own as a mere chronic illness sufferer. Tim is a dear friend I've known for a long time, and I'm so grateful he was willing to come on the podcast and share this story. Lastly, he's also an entrepreneur who founded and runs two startups, Bonefrog Coffee and Bonefrog Cellars. Beyond just selling great coffee and wine, Tim is using these companies to give back. You can learn more about them and their mission at bonefrogcoffee.com and bonefrogcellars.com. Lastly, remember that Rare Sense content is not medical advice, nor does it represent the official position or opinions of any other organization or person. If you require diagnosis or treatment for a mental or physical issue or illness, please seek it from a licensed professional. Now, without further ado, here's Tim Cruikshank. All right, Tim, awesome to see you, brother. How are you doing? Yeah, you as well. Thanks for having me, Chris. This is yeah. really exciting. Yeah, so let's um, start off with just giving everybody who you are and what you've done and where you're at, just like a quick synopsis of your background. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I've worked in medicine for, I, I was thinking about this over 30 years and, uh, you know, I started my career back in 1987, uh, as an x-ray tech and I worked in CT and cross-sectional anatomy and all that kind of stuff before I even joined the Navy. Oh, I didn't even know that about you. Yeah. So, you oh, know, I've been working cool. in medicine for a long time. Um, so that's my initial background. I joined the Navy. I become a, a corpsman, uh, go to BUDS, become a SEAL, and then become a special operations combat medic. Um, I go on to serve in the SEAL teams and and work in that capacity as a, as a medic, and then eventually went to PA school. Um, I got a master's in family practice, but really my background is in trauma medicine, so trauma, ER, Became a DMO, um, hyperbaric medicine. Uh, actually went on to become the liaison to NATO for all special operations undersea medicine. Finished my career as the Navy Dean and OIC of JSOMTC, which is a joint special operations training center at Fort Bragg for 18 Delta. So it was myself and an Army colonel that had the privilege of training 18 Delta medics for all services for the U.S. and kind of Can being a liaison. Can you explain what that is, too, just for people that don't know what 18 Delta is? Yeah, of course. So 18 Delta is a 13-month program where they train combat medics in the Army, the Navy, and, you know, by proxy, the Marine Corps, because the Navy corpsmen serve with MARSOC um, and uh Recon and that. So you got Green Berets, Rangers, SEALs, SWIC, the boat guys. Yep. Recon, Marsoc, and we trained all of them to be to be able to 
uh, treat trauma patients and hold on to them for 72 hours in austere environments like up in the Hindu Kush in Afghanistan where you didn't have medevac capabilities. And so these guys are are trained, you know, uh, not only in the medical side of things, but trauma. So uh, venous cut downs, thoracentesis, crikes, you know, the whole thing uh, to be able to handle a trauma patient in any scenario. It's quite amazing. And now you are a, are you a family physician? What's your official role now as a doctor? I'm a PA, physician assistant, with a background in trauma, emergency room medicine, hyperbarics, and dermatology. Okay. Um, So once I got out, I went into the derm field. And I was working a little bit in that um, while I was in the Navy as well as sports medicine. I ran several sports medicine clinics at the, in the teams. Um, so orthopedic sports med. So I've got okay. quite a diverse background yeah. in medicine. So the reason, uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. One, as we were talking before we got on here, we are, we're close friends. We serve together in the teams. And, uh, I should tell this quick story that you were a trainer of mine too. Uh, when I went through training an instructor, and, and I honestly can't remember if it was actually in buds or in mini buds, but I still, I have this vision of you. And, and the funny thing is, it's, it's probably not even right. It's right. Like our memory is not all that good, but I have this vision of you. We're on the beach. I'm trying to keep my feet up at like six inches off the deck and you're kicking sand on me and being like, get your feet off the ground. You turd. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the image I have. And then years later, we served together over in Germany, where I was yeah. the, the exo of the unit there, and you were the you were the doc for the for the unit, which was really cool. So, you know, I want to talk to wanted to talk to you because you're somebody who has gone from special operations into the medical field. And actually, I didn't know this about you, but we're sort of into medicine pre seals, and then went kind of back to it. Yeah, and that's such a unique thing. Although I think people would be surprised as to how many guys actually do that. There's a fair number of guys that do that, that I know of, and I'm sure you know of more, but then you're also somebody who has kind of a personal experience, which I'll allow you to share to the extent you want about being a a caregiver, as you say, and, and a recipient of medicine with your family, which gives you a very, I think, unique perspective on the medical industry establishment, whatever you want to call it. And as we've talked privately on the phone, that perspective is very similar to mine. And I think it's really good to hear that from a doctor too. It's one thing to be sort of a sufferer, for lack of a better term, that doesn't have any medical training whatsoever. But for somebody who's in it and has been in it, I think that that perspective is really great. So just as a kind of like tee up for that, can you talk about why like what motivated you to do that, to go be a, be a SEAL, which everybody thinks it was like kick-ass and like, you know, sort of the opposite of medicine, to start, sort of like inflicting harm on, on people, hopefully that deserve it, um, to the, the, the doc side of that. And, and even what that transition is like, because you, you obviously stayed in the community. I'm just kind of curious of like your, you know, what drives you for that. Yeah. So... The irony or the dichotomy of being a medic and a SEAL is not lost on all of us that serve in that capacity. And we talk about it, you know, 
or we did when we were active duty, in that, you know, we're trained in special operations to go kill the enemy. But if they weren't killed, then we had to save them. Which right. In a lot of cases, you're, you're, you're torn on this. But I think, you know, being um, having a service heart, right, uh, and wanting to do what's best for my country and serve in the best capacity that God gave me, my skills and, and what I'm good at is medicine and, and special operations. And to combine those two, I think, is a privilege for me to be able to be out there um, to take care of my guys first, right? So I had to do that quite a bit. You know, we, there at the end, we served a war that was, when I got out, it was still going and been going for 16 years. Yeah. And, um, you know, to be able to take care of my guys in that way for me was an honor and a privilege. And it really, it's just something that I innately had in me that I wanted to, to do medicine. Um, so that's. Yeah. I love that service heart idea. I've, I've never heard that term and that's a really good way to say it, you know, cause I think that is accurate. It's like, regardless of the way we're doing things, obviously the sort of, I shouldn't say harming people. That's not, that's not the intent of being a seal, right. obviously, but there's, there's, right. it's, it's a combat role, right? And like you, you have to be trained to to inflict violence when it's necessary, not in an indiscriminate way in a very right. surgical way and whatnot. I mean, like the intent is not harming people, but it is, but still, you know, you have to be able to, to do that, um, when it's, when it's required. Um, but I think to your point, hopefully all of it <clears throat> comes out of that, that service mentality, right? Like what we were doing, regardless of the way it is expressed is for the greater good. It is is service. <laughs> Oriented, yeah. right? Yeah. It's yeah. honestly, Chris, for love of country. I'm yeah. I always sure. say that I'm an overly patriotic person. I just I love my country and I think we're a, a shining beacon of hope and light for the world. And to me, that was worth risking my life for that I believe in those values, that they're that important to me. And to go out and serve in that capacity with you guys, my teammates, my buddies, um, to protect our homeland, especially after 9-11 when we were attacked, was important to me. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the the end result of harming other people. It really has to do with protecting our communities, our families, our country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel the same way, obviously. Yeah. Like, I think the, the sort of patriotism is such an interesting concept for me, right? Because there's certainly things like where our country... No country is perfect, right? There's right. things about the country. Right. Especially and it's right always now. such it's such a difficult thing to encapsulate. Like for me, it always gets back to values. To me, it's yeah. like what yeah. what I what I patriotism patriotism to me is I am supporting and a believer in the values upon which the country was founded. Yeah. Right. Like exactly. The bit the, the, the principles that are sort of embedded into the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, like those those core precepts to me are what's so important and so critical to keep and uphold and make sure do, they don't vanish from the earth, right? Because uh, <laughs> if they do, we are screwed. As far That's as what I'm it's concerned. all about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So, so I, I want to get into kind of your personal journey, so to speak, as a 
doctor slash caregiver with your with your family and whatnot and this this where this is because you said you speak to people and people are kind of like i'm so great that somebody's actually saying this shit (laughs) Mm -hmm. right so i guess start wherever you want to start there to the extent you're comfortable with with kind of where you're at with because i think this is so important to highlight of like where we are medically in the world and maybe in western society because i certainly have my viewpoints on it but i I really want to hear from you as a trained person who operates in this in this industry and what you've seen and what you're experiencing right now so i'll tell you when i first started this chris you know with a belief in what i was doing and we swear an oath we raise our hand and we swear an oath to do no harm right to always protect our patients and i believed in the system that I was operating in, this U.S. healthcare system that I believe to be the best in the world with uh, the best intentions for our patients, the highest quality of healthcare that people would come from around the world to seek healthcare here in the United States because they believed it to be the best. And so I want to say to your listeners, before I start, that this is my experience that I've had both as a healthcare giver, a provider, and uh, a caregiver at home to my wife who's suffering from stage four cancer. And so I'm getting to see both sides of things. And I'm going to give you kind of a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, um, on my experiences in that regard. Okay. So my wife, uh, I had the unfortunate, uh, Sorry. <laughs> I, it's all right, man. I, I was the one who read her CAT scan. And I told her over the phone her diagnosis, and she thought I was joking. This was back in 2008, and I was serving at uh, MARSOC uh, when we were as plank owner there standing up to command. And, and she called. She had just a regular um, CAT scan. She thought she had a umbilical hernia uh, post-pregnancy. And uh, she just said, hey, can you read my results? And so I told them to her, and, and I'm crying on the phone because um, her, she had a two-and-a-half-centimeter tumor in her left kidney that at the time I believed to be a renal cell cancer, and typically you last six months and, and you die from that. It's really aggressive. And so she said, you know, stop, just stop. You're, you you got to be joking. And I said, Liz, I'm, I'm not. And I'm going to actually, I'm going to come home and I'm going to sit down and talk to you about this and we'll go over it. And, you know, uh, after we did that, I uh, got an appointment for her in urology and we sat and talked to the doctor there at Camp Lejeune and uh, ended up getting a referral to UNC. She had a hemi-nephrectomy where they removed half her kidney and took her lymph nodes out and, and all that stuff. And, and, um, Got her an appointment with oncology for follow-ups, and and it ended up not being a renal cell cancer. It ended up being carcinoid, which is a strange place for that to occur. What is carcinoid? I don't know what that is. It's a type of neuroendocrine tumor, and typically they um, show up in the intestine somewhere. Um, They're found later in life. Uh, They're usually asymptomatic, and you know we found hers incidentally on a on imaging and. You know, we thought, well, we caught it early. We got it out. Um, it's slow growing. They removed the lymph nodes. We thought we were good. 
And why remove um, lymph nodes, by the way? What is the is it because it's the cancer cells are in there as well? Well, the thought process is that they're possibly in there. And so they'll remove those lymph nodes to keep it from spreading to other places. Think of the lymph nodes as like, I always refer to them as like a car oil filter, right? So they're removing all the debris and the bacteria and viruses and toxins and cancer cells. And they can get into the lymph nodes. So they'll usually remove the local regional chain of lymph nodes right around the tumor to, you know, uh, be proactive and stop the spread of cancer. Don't your lymph nodes do a lot to detox your body though? Like, Yes. Okay. They do. So you have a whole lymphatic system, and so you can remove a few of them and still function properly. Okay. In her case, though, Chris, what we ended up finding out is it jumped chains. So it was in those lymph nodes, but it had already metastasized to the next chain of lymph nodes. At our follow-up, we found that it had metastasized to her spine, and... uh, and that's when the journey began back in 2008 um, in dealing with her cancer. It really wasn't until right around COVID 2020, uh, we were sitting on the couch. And up to this point, we had been treating with uh, different injections and modalities and imaging and that kind of stuff. But really, it had remained stable from 2008 to about 2020. It had spread. but at this point, she's sitting on the couch and she's complaining of these symptoms. And she said, uh, I'm really thirsty. She was, she drank an entire bottle of Pellegrino. And I, I was like, you know, you're exhibiting symptoms of diabetes. It's really strange. And I called a doctor friend of mine. We we're talking about her symptoms. And, and she said that, um, she goes, the, the cabinets in the kitchen, they're melting. And I go, okay, we're going to get you in and get some labs done. And uh, we got her in to oncology, got the labs done. And all of a sudden, a few hours later, our, our phones are blowing up that her her blood glucose was over 800. And so for people What's a normal that, blood, blood? Yeah, you're probably about to say it. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, under 100. Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, uh, the doctors at that time told us, you know, blood glucose of 800 is incompatible with life. And, uh, yeah, we had to get her in that night, talk to a doctor and, and I started giving her insulin and, uh, trying to get that managed and under control. And in the meantime, they said, and, and this is the key right here, Chris. And I think a lot of people that have cancer or know somebody with cancer, have heard this story before. They put the fear of God into you that you need to get chemo now. Yes. Yes. Chemo now. Nothing else is going to save you. You got to do chemo. And I will say, we're going to look back on this someday with a very critical eye and how barbaric and stupid this was to give people chemo. Studies have shown, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here because it pisses me off, but the NIH has spent over a trillion dollars in cancer research, a trillion, without any noticeable improvement in cancer outcomes. So right now, um, with chemotherapy, they're seeing about a 2% success rate. There are cancers that respond to chemo 
but the majority of them don't. And they find success in, they say this chemo was successful and they've extended your life three months or they've stopped cancer uh. for, it's all in the verbiage that they use, but essentially it's like Agent Orange, right? In um, Vietnam, it kills and destroys everything. Yeah. When we go back and we look at why cancer starts in the first place, you need to remove the thing that caused the cancer in the first place, not just destroy the entire system, which chemo right. does. Yes. So we found ourselves in this position of scare tactics. You've got to get chemo now. And at that time, I didn't know what I know now. I still believed in the American system. And so we got her started on chemo. Can I pause you just real yeah. quick there? A couple questions before you go on. One is, you said she was sort of stable there for, I don't know what it was, seven seven years or something like that. Yeah. Um, was it an inoperable situation? Like they, the tumors that were in there, then they, they couldn't operate on them. Is that the right. why they were just sort of contained, basically? Yeah. So initially, they metastasized to her spine. Right. And they progressed from there. And so the imaging would show what looked like salt and pepper in her spine, she had one big tumor, uh, which was 0.8 millimeters, uh, T8, T9 in her spine, but everything remained stable and they couldn't understand how she was even walking at that point. She looked yeah. normal. She walked normal, but then it metastasized from her spine to her pancreas and then to her liver and then to her brain and then to her lungs. And now it's everywhere. And when it metastasized to her pancreas is when it caused the diabetes because it basically, when they imaged her, there were so many tumors in her pancreas, they couldn't even discern okay. the pancreas itself. Got and it. that's what produces um, insulin and glucagon. Okay, and so, the, so the, the response she was having with the super high glucose level, that was as a result of the, the tumors in her, in her organs, basically, that was causing this sort of diabetic response. Exactly. They call okay. it fragile diabetes. It's not a type 1 or type 2. It's totally different. Interesting. Okay, I've never yeah. heard of that. So then on the just real quick on the cancer research. So what the fuck are they doing then? Like what's all this money going for if we just basically have the same chemo stuff that according to you only helps like 3% of the people really? That's a really good question. And so it's my belief and others beliefs that they don't necessarily and I'm going to say it out loud. I don't know if they necessarily want us to get better. Mm. So think about this just for a second, right? We'll put our critical thinking hats on because I think we're really good at that special. Oh, we tend to be, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> let's think this thing through, right? So if they find a cure for cancer and people actually get better. Right. Can't make any money. They can't make any money. They're losing their trillion dollar business yeah. because now they've fixed the problem and it's that way in medicine throughout rather than fixing the problem they find medications that are like band-aids that also cause side effects that need more medication to treat the side effects and they come up with new names right. you see it on the these commercials all the time i'm like oh God, you gotta be kidding me they've taken um side effects Given them an acronym or some new name like tardive dyskinesia, 
And now there's another medication to handle that. Yes. It's being caused by the medication for the initial problem, which is not curing the problem. It's just, it's stabilizing it and causing side effects that need more medication. Yep. Speaking my language. So I, I want to like, let you kind of continue here with the story, but yeah, go back to kind of the, the chemotherapy, right? Like where you're at with that and everything. And you, you're basically saying, right. It's like the analogy is Asian orange or whatever, right? Like, the, or, or, Hey, the forestry service, we've got a, we've got a diseased tree in the middle of this forest and let's just clear cut the whole forest to get rid of the, that's yeah. going to be the solution, right? So I want people to sit and think about this for a second, maybe even go online and research this. Okay. So we use chemotherapy to kill cancer cells, but in the process of doing that, we're killing really all cells and weakening the patient. Cancer should not be a death sentence. It is a curable thing if you remove the things that cause the cancer in the first place. And I want to get into that later. Yeah. But yeah. that's kind of the thought process. You got to remove the things that are causing your cancer, get your body healthy, and, and, and create an environment where cancer cells can't live anymore. Well, giving a, a, a patient chemo destroys that. It destroys your immune system. It destroys your body. And here's what happened to my wife. So we started chemo and she went about three and a half months getting chemo once a week. And on March 24th, her doctor said, I'd like you to go in and get uh, your blood drawn because I think you're getting a little anemic. Okay, so I took her in. I'm still in my scrubs. I got off work. I took her into oncology to get her blood drawn. She's got a port in her in yep. her main artery here, right? Yep. So um, they take her back in the room, and I'm standing kind of in the doorway, and, and she's not feeling very good. She's very pale, and she's lost her hair. And you, you've seen what chemo patients look like. Of course, like. yeah. She says to the nurse as she's trying to access her port, she goes, just, I, I can't. It, it hurts too much. Please stop. Please stop. And she codes, Chris, right in front of me. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. She died. Oh, holy shit. And her heart stopped. She stopped breathing. She was out. The nurse stood there with her mouth open, wide-eyed. I had to run the code. So <laughs> I, I tell her to, to, to start the code, you know, so they go over the intercom system and I'm yelling at nurses out in the hallway. I lay Liz down and I start working on her. Oh my God. Within, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds, we've got probably 30 people in the room. And fortunately, oncology was right next to the emergency room. So they got the crash cart in and, and, and all that. And they revived her with a blood pressure of 40 over 20. Oh. 40 oh. over 20. One of our oncologists was in there. And he's kind of looking and seeing what's going on. And I, I said his name and he looks over and he goes, Tim? I go, yeah, it's Liz. This is, oh, and he goes, oh my God, oh my God. And so we rush her to the emergency room. They did a blood draw there. She had a hemoglobin of 5.3. Now, normal is anything above 11, 10 and a half, 11. Again, I heard this statement from the ER doctor that a hemoglobin of 5.3 is incompatible with life. I don't know how she's alive right now. She had a temperature of 100 point, 103. 
hemoglobin levels down here, the whole, it's a mess. And this is right during COVID. So you were going through all the COVID protocols and all that stuff. And they're trying to keep me out of the room and we've got all this stuff going on. And, and I'm concerned with now her getting blood transfusion from COVID patients. And so we're going through all that. And right. do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, totally. I had to make a decision on the spot. They go, look, she needs two bags of red blood cells now, or she's going to die. You either do it or she dies. And I said, you know, pray to God that nothing happens. You know, I, I don't know. We didn't know at that time, you know, if we were going to be transferring COVID through blood right. or right, what. Right, right. And I'm like, <laughs> right. If we, right. Let's, if you wind the clock back, know. we were like I, putting mail in the microwave, right? We thought I didn't like, know. right. Yeah. So yeah. I said, just do it. We got to save her life right now. I've got to do what's yeah. best for her. So we get her the blood. We get her going on this thing and they admit her. It was March 24th and she was admitted, I don't know, for uh, four weeks or so. I came in from work one day and, you know, she was really struggling and a lot of times unconscious and um, she had what was called anasarca which is swelling of her arms and legs. She looked like a big Michelin balloon because her albumin levels were low. And so I was constantly checking things. They sent her into kidney failure um, by not checking um, this IV antibiotic that they're giving her. You got to check trough levels on it and they weren't checking them. And so I had access to all her labs and I, I had to stay on top of it and say, you guys got to check the trough levels. You got to get on her albumin. You got to do this and that. So they're annoyed by me because... I know what's going on and I'm trying to guide them through this. I said, if you don't stop this IV medication right now, you're going to put her into um, kidney failure. Her, her GFR, her glomerular filtration rate is nearing 20. You're going to have to put her on dialysis and I'm going to sue the crap out of you. Stop now. And they did. <laughs> well, one day I came in from work and everything on her IV pole had been taken off. Everything had been stopped. The nurses were told to not help her anymore. And they're in tears. And I said, um, I was talking to her lead nurse and I said, what's going on? And they said, Dr. So-and-so has told us to stop helping her, uh, to send her home, put her on hospice and let her die. I mean, let that sink in for a second. In my yeah. head, I'm thinking this doctor so-and-so, who I later said will never come near my wife again, um, is trying to murder my life. Right. And right. So, it's done out of spite, right? It's not a, it's not a what's, it's not a Hippocratic oath action here. It is a, hey, this guy's a pain in the ass, so I'm going to let his wife die, basically. Yes. Right? He made the mistake of coming into the room later that evening. It was probably 1.30 in the morning, and I was still there with her. And he sat uh, in the chair and I was on the bed with her and started telling me how mean I was being, trying to keep her alive and um, said that I just needed to let her go and let her die and take her home. And I listened to him and I said, if you ever get between me and my wife again, I will... <laughs> And I, <laughs> yeah, I know <laughs> very clearly defined. I said, you need to leave this room now. 
and never come back. I'm firing you. You're getting replaced. I made some phone calls because I know a lot of the doctors and that kind of stuff. And we created a team within two hours. We created a team of doctors. They came in, talked to me. We formulated a plan and we got her better. She walked out of the hospital in May. Wow. It's just unbelievable. Even the nurses. So my, you know, my wife and she, yeah, she was so grateful that we went back and I had a huge cart. She made all these thank you gifts for the nurses and all this stuff. We're walking around the hospital, handing out gifts. They didn't even know who she was because she looks so much different. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. They're like, Liz? Oh my God. She goes, yeah, it's me. It's me. You saved my life. And you know, all this stuff. That was kind of the beginning of this story that I'm going to tell you this journey that she has been on and fought against the system. And so um, this new team of doctors were working on all these strategies and things and were getting her better and getting her healthy. But after about a year of that, it got to a point again, Chris, where this new doctor said, I have run out of tools, I guess is the best word to say it. I've run out of tools in my tool bag to help you. Um, I think maybe, maybe the best option for you is to go home on hospice and wait it out. And Liz and I looked at each other like, I got this. We couldn't believe that it was coming out of this doctor's mouth, just like it came out of the other doctor's mouth, but yeah. just in a different way. So I found her another treatment um, at Fred Hutch. And we took her to Fred Hutch and we got her started on this treatment. And her previous oncologist, when we went back to see her for continuity, almost was, what's the word I'm looking for? Because her of her ego, she couldn't accept that we had sought other treatment. Mm, she was almost yeah. offended by it. Right. Well, sure. let that sink in for a minute. Yeah. So we do this treatment for a little while and it it stops working. And I had to have a come to Jesus kind of moment. And I remember laying in bed, it was like two in the morning and I, I just prayed. And all of a sudden it came to me um, and I got on the internet and I started researching integrative medicine or, you know, non-traditional yep. medicine. Mm -hmm. Up to this point, I'd been so focused on Western medicine and what I knew and how I was trained in medicine. And I go, I got to think outside the box because there's nothing left within the system that I grew up in to help her. And so I found this place called Hope for Cancer. And the first patient testimonial that I saw in there um, was this guy that had testicular cancer. And he's talking to the camera and he says, you know, I, I went through the, basically the same process that I just went through with my wife. I went through this whole process and God spoke to me to go on the internet and look, and here I am at this place and I've cured myself of cancer and here's how I did it. And I go, you've, you've got to be kidding me. So here I was asking for a sign, something to help me. Cause I, at this point I'm desperate. I don't know what else to do. And did that guy what, write a book by the way? Is that, um, I don't know if he did. There's but a, the I doctor swear to God, there's a, the yeah, there's a story like it's Chris something or other. Um, oh, Chris beat cancer. Yes, that guy. Yep. Different. 
Okay, got it. I thought it was that dude. But okay. Chris was doing a lot of the same type of things. Yeah. So right, here right. I am now researching integrative medicine. Yep. Which makes this is really where our conversation can yeah, start. Yeah, because yeah, because it's what I it's what I went after in a completely different thing, right? Mine wasn't cancer or like really I wouldn't call it life threatening necessarily, but like the same thing. Like you gotta veer off and yeah. But this is where health begins. What I've realized is and when we got down there for her first week, they they sit us all at tables together, all these people from all over the world. I mean we we sat at a table with somebody from Australia, Japan, Canada, the United States, and everybody has the same story of their doctors putting the fear of God in them that if you don't have chemo, surgery, and radiation, you're going to die. Some of them did it. Some of them didn't do it. If you didn't do it, you had a better chance of survival because you didn't destroy your body. Liz is still trying to fight the effects of the chemo that's wiped her bone marrow out. Yeah. Her red blood cells, her white blood cells. Where was, where were you, by the way? Where, where was this place that you went to? In Mexico. Okay. Yeah, it's in Mexico. There's two places, one in Cancun and one in Tijuana, which for Americans, you're like, <laughs> I'm going to take my loved one to Tijuana. We have all these preconceived notions yeah. Sure. Of what it's going to be like. So I'm I'm fearful at this point of taking my sick wife to Tijuana. How wrong I was, I can't even tell you. By far the best healthcare we have ever had, and this is coming from somebody who worked in healthcare. Wow. Five-star meals. Doctors that this is what I love. Um, her doctor. Her doctor's name is Pablo Romero. He's trained in Mexico City and he has worked in the United States. But he takes the time to sit and explain everything. And he has a uh, a knowledge that is not just specialized. It's all-inclusive. And I think, you know, once we... Doctors in America started specializing really kind of in the late 50s, early 60s. Up until then, they were generalists. You can go back to the late 1800s and doctors were starting to get into specialties, but really in America, it started kind of in the late 50s, early 60s. And these doctors have gotten so specialized in their one little area. You can ask them, um, you know, if you're a dermatologist, I'm having a heart arrhythmia. They have no idea how to right. read an EKG. You know what I mean? So yeah, totally. these doctors down there are more like a DO where they, they treat the entire system rather than just one. Yep. So they have a full knowledge of the whole body instead of just their particular system. And so yeah. he would give me homework and I would sit in my chair and I'd read and he'd walk by cause you're living in the clinic Yeah, and he'd walk by and I'd ask him questions and he was so happy to help me learn these new treatments and I had asked the oncologist back here in America, I said, there's one particular treatment called sonophotodynamic therapy. Now, we did PDT in dermatology where we would apply this gel to somebody's face and shine a red light or a blue light on it, and it would kill skin cancer. And he said, well, it's the same effect, but you use an ultrasound wand and you have... Um, mm what's called an SP activate. So you take this uh, sublingually 
and yep. it attaches to the cancer cells, and then you use this ultrasound wand that activates it and kills the cancer. So I said to this doctor here in America, have you heard of this? And she goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great. I said, you know, there's been 70,000 studies on this sono photodynamic therapy. She goes, oh, I know. It's super effective. It's really great. And I said, well, why aren't you using it here in America? And she said, well, it's not FDA approved. <laughs> right. So when right. she says she doesn't have any tools left in her tool chest, she's only pulling from things that are FDA approved. Right, right, right. It, and so many people hang their hat on that too, right? I think that's the thing that, um, yeah, obviously want to let you kind of keep going with this, but man, there's so much that you've already said that I want to, like, I want to go back and But there's so much about. more too. I know. Well, um, so, so just keep going and then we'll kind of, okay. we'll, we'll, yeah. So, I want to hit on that point. So FDA approved, right? Everybody's yeah. like, ooh, gold standard, FDA approved. It means yes. it's whatever you're using is safe and effective. Theoretically, yeah. Safe and effective. Chemotherapy is FDA approved, meaning it's safe and effective. Right. Well, no, and there's, no, no, it's not. Right. Well, I think that the thing is like people and and I don't blame them is we we want to think this is obviously changing a little bit, but we want to think that our institutions are uh, honorable and noble and they're there to help us and do the, what's best for the common good. And so the, the default is, well, yeah, I mean, like the FDA is there to do exactly that, to approve things, make sure that things ensure that something dangerous isn't coming out of the market. But it's but to your point. In reality, like, is that true with certain things? Of course it is, but other things, not so much. And then other things, it's just, it's, you know, kept from the market for whatever reason, right? Whether yeah. that's money or personality or ego or whatever. And it's, yeah, I'm at the point where like, to me, FDA approval means absolutely nothing. I mean, right, it, Oxycontin was FDA approved, right? Like that was, that was FDA approved that, that, and that's, that killed like 50,000 people a year. That's yeah, so I like, think fentanyl is FDA. Yeah. Approved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of these, drugs that have been approved that are now they're, they're off the market. So these medications that they advertise on TV and then they give you the list of yep. side effects that go on for like a minute. Yep. Those are FDA yeah. approved. Right. As are the, to your point, the drugs you then have to take for the side effects of the drug that you were taking in the first place. I mean, I see those exactly. with like mental health drugs where it's like, Hey, are you on this? whatever it is, antidepressant or something. And it's like, you may experience these side effects. Now we've, you try, ask your doctor about, and, and that whole, even that whole thing to me is so bizarre because it's like, if you just think about that, like break it down, it's, you've got pharmaceutical companies manufacturing drugs that they're then advertising the consumer to try and convince them to go into their doctor's office and ask and, and, Right. And like give them yeah. the drugs, basically. That's the play. It's yes. crazy. That's a crazy way to do things. So I have to go outside the United States to get treatments for my wife and pay out of pocket. Yep. All right. Because insurance yep. won't cover it if you leave the right. United States to get yep. treatments for her to save her life. Because I have yep. exhausted, and this is what the doctors told me, I have exhausted every avenue they are out of tools in their tool bag so now i'm seeking help outside the united states so i personally went to this place called hope for cancer this book 
was given to me. Yep. Hope for cancer. By He's Dr. holding up the book says hope for cancer. Just yeah. Antonio Jimenez, Jimenez. We can see. I want to read to you his thought process um, really quick. He's got the seven key principles of cancer therapy. Let me put my glasses on because I'm old. Hold on just a sec. Okay. I'm getting there. I'm not quite there yet, but this, I'm getting close. One of these days, I'm going to have to pony up for uh, okay. description. So non-toxic cancer therapies, right? Mm -hmm. Total mm -hmm. opposite from chemo. Immunomodulation, so strengthening the immune system. Full-spectrum nutrition, removing all the things that lead to cancer, all the processed foods and pesticides. And yep. you get down there and they, they treat you with... Um, it's it's a vegan diet, but it also you can eat eggs and fish. Um, they detoxify you. They remove uh, from your body all the things that have contributed to your cancer diagnosis. How do they do that? By the way, I'm curious because um, I'm big into this right now. Oh gosh, there's so many ways. Um, are they okay, chelating? So or are they what are they doing? There's chelation. There's high dose vitamin C. There's mm -hmm. uh, Hydrogen therapy, both breathing it and yep. um, uh, hydrogen water. There's ozone therapy. There's yep. uh, infrared sauna. That it goes on and on. But yep. they have all yep. these ways to remove toxins from your body. Love it. Uh, they hyper oxygenate you through hyperbarics, the hydrogen therapy. You know all those kind of things. Yep. They restore your microbiome which is destroyed over time in your gut, which, you know, our yep. gut is like 70% of our immune system. Emotional and spiritual healing. And those are the seven aspects. And so do you think any of that happens in oncology in America? No. When no. she was- I know it does No. The other day we're in the waiting room, which is standing room only, which should scare most Americans. And- They've got a bowl of candy on one of the coffee tables in oncology, a bowl of candy. Right, right. You get hospitalized and they treat, they, they give, give you, you jello and sodas and garbage. There's no regard for nutrition. I mean, yes. we could have a talk on nutrition for the next two hours. It just oh, totally. blows yeah. Yeah. my mind. But they don't have any regard for any of the things that I just talked about, only chemo, radiation, and surgery. Yeah. So now we can talk about specific things because their thought process, and they gave me this book and I read the book and then, you know, Dr. Pablo would give me homework and I'd research. And love it. I love it. No doctors here in America did that. Yeah. And uh, I have had so much fun learning this stuff and Liz is getting better. And we've heard story after story just sitting at these tables of people that showed up in Liz's condition. When I first brought her down there, she was in a wheelchair. She couldn't walk, could barely get her on the airplane to go down. And within three days of her being there doing treatments, she was walking and climbing stairs. Yeah. It's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. <laughs> and, you know. And, and I, well, I think that speaks to I think what people fail to realize is, and it can be hard sometimes, certainly if you're in a really bad way, like Liz or you know, any hundreds of, probably millions of people out there, shit, maybe billions, I don't know. 
but your body actually is remarkably good at healing. It's remarkably good at healing. If yes. you remove the burdens that are on it that are preventing it from doing that. Exactly. Right? And I think that so much of that book, and, and again, I'm big into this right now. I think I was ta- telling you I'm doing all this detox stuff uh, through Josh Mason's site and Detox Dudes, um, which yeah. is all focused, which is very much focused on nutrition, pulling toxins out of the body in various ways through supplementation, um, healing the gut, cleansing the liver, uh, like you name it. Right. And like so much of it is, goes back to that. It goes back to like, you know, you, it's, you you have to put good stuff in your body to begin with, right? You have to put like healthy, nutritious stuff. And then you got to pull out the shit that's accumulated over time. Right. I mean, like you talk about the, waiting room only in at the oncologist there at the hospital. And to me, like that just speaks to, okay, why, why is that happening? Right. If we're spending trillions of dollars on cancer research and chemo works so effectively, why is it, are we stacking people up with cancer? Like their cord would to me, it just speaks to unhealthy lifestyle, a toxic environment, in numerous ways, not only physically, but some of that other stuff, like that spiritual, emotional stuff is really important too. Like that's a big piece of it. You know, the sort of energetic component of people. There's a book called the biology of belief yep. by Bruce Lipton. I've read it. Okay. Yep. yep. I think your <laughs> listeners uh, need to read that. And Good. here's why. Thank you for saying that by the way, because I mean, that really, uh, honestly, that kind of warms my heart because it's a book and a, and a philosophy, again, that I, I see people, educated, smart people who just like, bullshit, fuck that. Like, and th- this notion of like what you believe, what you think impacts your cells, like the environment you create for yourself. 100%. Yes. Right. And so to come from, again, from a doctor, like to me, that's so important because, uh, man, there's just people that just, they dismiss it outright. And, and I just think- no, like this is correct, right? So keep going with that. It's a it's a key to Liz's survival, to be honest with you. And so when you go into the doctor and how many people have been told you have this aggressive cancer and you're going to die in six weeks. And if you believe it, you yes. will. Yes. You die. Right. If in your head you're like, that's bullshit. I am going to fight this thing. Liz, when she goes in to meet new doctors, she goes, hi. My name is Liz Crookshank, and I'm going to live to 88, and you're going to be the doctor that saves me. Yeah. See the difference? Yes. Liz believes she's going to get better. And, I, and it's not only that. I, I, I mean, I did a post about this this morning, this this sort of – it goes beyond, I think, believe belief in getting better. It's a – you have to, like, give yourself loving messages yeah. through your thoughts and through yes. your actions. Like, you have to – so many people – send messages to themselves of essentially hatred. And like, that sounds extreme, but it can be as simple as I don't like the way I look, right? That's a, that's a hateful message you're sending back to yourself or I, or regret or shame, any of those types of messages, right? Those are, those are negative energies. You are, you are reciprocating on yourself and you have to like recognize that and start flipping that script. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, go, I know people who, Josh, again, Mason, I'll reference him again, just because I'm following his stuff and and really getting into it. But he would go so far as like every morning brushing his teeth saying, I love you 
in the mirror to himself over and over and over again, which sounds so weird. I mean, it makes you uncomfortable. A lot of people would be like, oh, that like creeps <laughs> me out, right? But even if you don't go that far, like trying to stop yourself in the act of, of all these destructive messages that you, that you put out, yeah, and people don't even realize it, I guess is the point, right? They just don't realize the information, the data they are sending to their cells that are contributing to their demise. In a way, in a, they address this when you go to Hope for Cancer with treatment, the emotional and psychological trauma that you've experienced through your life can affect you getting cancer, and they address yes. those issues. And you need to reverse those things in your yep. life, address yep. them, recognize them, remove them, because they, they can af affect your body profoundly. Um when my wife was going through her treatment, palliative care, there were two doctors there that had a faith-based background and they would pray with her. And I, I thought mm -hmm. that was remarkable that they would do this because really faith has been taken out of our medical system almost completely. It affected my oldest daughter so much that she, um, she just finished her undergrad in psychology with, um, with a, with a, minor in theology and she wants to go on to become a therapist with a faith-based background in, mm -hmm. yeah. in, uh, in theology it, because she watched the, uh, the effect that it had on, on her mom, uh, just, you know, either in the emergency room or while she was admitted upstairs, these doctors sitting, holding her hand, praying with her and believing that she was going to get better. Yep. And, and, and she and did. And to me, that's the key, right? Like I'm not a religious person and obviously there's different face all over the Sure. Um, so that's, but I, what I would say is like breaking that down to its very sort of fundamental rudimentary core concept there is this, is a spirituality, right? What, however you express that's that. A, exactly. But, exactly. But this idea of, and what it, it is, it's going internal a little bit, right? It's like you're spending some time just like thinking and like, and like putting forth positive energy. To me, that's the the core thing that's going on with that, you know, and that's great. If you express that through a faith of some sort or whatever, that's awesome. Um, but that, I guess my point with that is like, to me, I've had to find a way to do that. I think this is the, the thing I'm trying to get to because I'm not religious. I'm not a, I don't subscribe to any major religion in any, uh, but I, because of that, I think I lost a little bit of a spirituality for myself that I've had to find. Um, and that's been an important piece for me too, to realize like that's, that is critical, you know? Yeah. And I think regardless of your religion, whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, a Hindu, it doesn't matter. The basis for that is faith, mm -hmm. faith and a belief in something. And that leads into what we were talking about, about this biology belief. You have faith that you're going to get better. You have a belief in something that's not tangible that you can grasp onto. Yeah. And you just got to believe. Can you talk just a little better. bit? about that book too, like the, the basic premise of it, right? Like a, that I think is important because it, uh, Bruce Lipton, he was a doctor where it, there's actual like science behind this of like mm -hmm. your, your beliefs will impact your cells, right? It's really, it's really true. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence-based studies with regards to this, kind of like what we talked about. And he goes through in his book and talks about these people that when they're, doctors are put, on a pedestal and held in high regard and, and their word is almost 
godlike, right? And if a doctor says to you, Chris, you've got three months to live and you believe him, this is what Bruce talks about. It's that belief that you're going to die or vice versa, that uh, you're you're going to fight this thing and you're going to live. And there's a connection between your thought process, your belief, and your cells that you can get yourself healthy uh, through that belief is kind of the root at what Bruce is saying. And even beyond that, I would say, regardless of what happens, how do you want to spend your days? However, whenever those end, do you want to spend them in fear or do you want to spend them in hope and optimism, right? Like, I mean, that's a choice. And I think what you're talking about with Western medicine, so much of it, all the advertising, everything is so fear-based. It's so fear-based. Everything, even if it's not a cancer diagnosis, it's like, hey, are you tired all the time? And do you have this, like, you should talk to your doctor because you probably have this disease type of thing. Exactly. It's just completely, and we know fear is detrimental to our health. Right. Like, I mean, the, like what f- fear physically affects you, you have a, your, it ramps up your amygdala and it does all these things physiologically to you. And, and if you live mm-hmm. in that state, and this is what's wrong with a lot of veterans out there, in my estimation is like, we're in this hypervigilant state. Yeah. Right. It affects your immune system. It totally. So it's, so it's like, you, you know, no matter what happens, you, you better off making a choice of like, I'm not going to live that way. I'm just not going to be afraid of this. I'm not going to have a doom and gloom attitude. It's, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, on my exit physical from the Navy, um, you know, they do this series of labs and all this stuff. And, um, my cortisol levels were through the roof, you know, they they diagnosed me with adrenal burnout, which for, I guarantee you every seal has adrenal burnout because of our op tempo, right? We are going nonstop. Uh, we have reverse sleep cycles. It's, it's nonstop. That level of anxiety that, uh, I wouldn't call it anxiety. Maybe it's stress, that fight or flight stress. Hypervigilance. Hypervigilance, all those things that we experience while we're out there in combat. You can't just turn that off overnight, you know? And and that has long-term effects on your health, your body and your cells and all that kind of stuff. It stays yeah. with us for a while and it takes a yeah. lot of time to combat those things and, and figure it out. Yeah. Um, and that's Can where I Dr. Take... Grossman comes into effect. And I'm sure you've heard of him. Grossman. Grossman, psychologist, army. He's written a lot of books. Oh no, I don't think I've heard of. You oh, should no. read some of his books. So like the U S military is really good at teaching us how to go out and and do combat, right? Do combat, kill people and that kind of stuff. But they don't teach you how to deal with that. <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah, 100%. All. Yeah. And his books yep. address that, not yep. only for military, but for police and first yep. responders and these things that we experience out there. And he, he goes through all these scenarios. They're great books, Dr. Grossman. Okay, cool. So I, I want to go back to a bunch of the some of these things that you highlighted through this journey with, with you and Liz. One is, it seems to me that we sort of grew up with this belief of when I'm sick, I'm going to go to the doctor and the doctor is going to fix me. And I don't really have to do anything other than do what he tells me, right? Like he's the authority figure or she, they are the authority figure. And 
they're going to fix me and I'm going to get better. And they are almost like a uh, TV drama type doctor. Like I will not rest, right? Even if it's a complicated thing, I will not rest until I figure out this complex thing. My experience, and it sounds like your experience too, is that that's not the case at all. At least if it ever was, it's not anymore. Like you, you, it's like you have to do it. You have to be in charge of your own health, recovery, whatever, and just, and, and be the one who doesn't rest, right? Like try, go to a, a certain doctor. Nope, that's not working. See ya, going to go off to somebody else. And my question is, what's, what happened? Why, why is that? Why is the medical Western medicine, United States medicine, so bad at this, at this point? Like what, what, you know, is it money? Is it ego? Is it all of those things? Is it, is it, just the nature of industry. I mean, what you've been in it, right? Like you're part of, you've been trained here. I'm glad you brought this up. So like if I go interview for a job and I'm going to work wherever, typically they will say, how many patients can you see a day? They want you to see at a minimum 32 patients a day. That's four patients an hour over an eight hour period. Oftentimes they want you to see 35 to 45 patients. And where is, where's that coming from? Where's the impetus for that coming from? So think about this for a second, (laughs) especially in a private practice. One, when I worked at a big hospital, they would expect that type of productivity as well as they're going to dictate to you what you can and can't say or prescribe and give you bonuses at the end of the quarter. So they go back and they review your records. I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, um, Bronchitis. Yeah. So they they will say to me, um, you can treat bronchitis. We don't want you to treat it with antibiotics anymore because, you know, you'd always give them a Z-pack and some cough syrup, whatever. Well, they found that bronchitis was typically viral, that antibiotics don't work. And so they would tell us, you have to treat your patients in this way. And if you don't, you're going to get reviewed and you're going to lose your bonus. Two, think of it- Yeah. So they're dictating how you practice medicine. And this is why a lot of doctors are like, I don't have any more tools in my tool shed. Two, productivity. They want you to see a certain number of patients per day because that's money. Right. Mm -hmm. So like when I worked in dermatology, I was, I build like a physician and I could do all the same things. And I was expected at a minimum to see four patients an hour. And I oftentimes saw six to eight. And you're like, well, how the hell did you do that? Well, some of the patients take 15 minutes. Other ones are, you know, follow-ups that can go in. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Doing great. Okay, I need to refill this or whatever. And off you go, five minutes. We have lost the ability to have critical thinking and relationships with our patients and really spend the time helping them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, you know, I'd work my eight-hour shift and I'd get done at the end of it and spend another two hours coding and calling patients and following up and talking to them, trying to figure out their problems. I would even go home, research, call them. It's time-consuming is the point I'm getting at. And so I think doctors and PAs and nurse practitioners, they get tired. And they see their patients, they want to go home and relax, and, and they forget about them. And really, the point I'm trying to get to the listeners is that the 
the medical provider is going to spend about 20, 15, 20 minutes with you, 20% of their capacity. The other 80% is on you to go home and research and figure out your healthcare problem and be an advocate for yourself, or they will let you die. And it's not that they're mean people and they don't care. They just don't have the bandwidth to deal with that many patients' illnesses. So is it basically just money then? Is it, I mean, is capitalism the problem here? In my belief, yes. yes. It's all about producing and they teach you to be like a master coder. So I could code your visit in a certain way and really leave right. hundreds For of dollars on the table yeah. if I don't right. code it properly. Right. It's right. disgusting. So, um, gosh, I mean, it's one of those things that, and there's a point you brought up there, which is, yeah, I mean, to me, a lot of, obviously the doctors by and large, they're good people. They're trying to help people. Yes. They're wrapped up in a system that, it, it, I mean, this is the problem. It's like there's overlords here that aren't really the doctor people. It's like, right? <laughs> the, the, it's the, the, pharma. The, right, the string pullers there, the, you know, the puppeteers. Um, and man, I just, so what's the, how do we fix that? You know? Well, it starts in the very beginning. So medical schools are funded by big pharma. And because they're funded by big pharma, they are allowed to dictate curriculum. And when you think about a doctor in a specialization, they are given a wire diagram, if this, then that. And in a lot of cases, they're given a list of medications that they're allowed to give, right? And it goes back to that story I told you that if I didn't follow the directions, I lose my bonus. So they are given these medications that they can or can't give in a wire diagram, and then it keeps going down. If this, then that, if this, then that, and then they run out of tools, but it's all dictated by big pharma. And that's what needs to stop is that relationship where they're allowing all this money to flow into medical schools and giving them the ability to dictate what is taught and what eventually when they become doctors, what the treatments are going to be in these hospitals. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. I just don't know how we do it. Like, how do, how how, does how do you it, fix that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. I, so I guess then I was speaking to this point of like, you know, being your own advocate and having to kind of like be your own champion. And um, I don't want to say be your own doctor, but like be the one who's really driving the, this stuff. How do we research? How do you do effective research as John Q or Jane Q public out there because there's so much trash information on the internet, right? Like there's all sorts of people out there say, I did <sighs> research and it told me the earth is flat or whatever, right? There's so much bad stuff out there. The approach I started taking was one to, to vet as best as I could if a treatment was dangerous, right? Like, or if it was really potentially harmful or if it was like, okay, hey, this is pretty safe. Like, you know, at, at worst, this is going to do nothing. It's some kind of placebo or it's bullshit. But then the other one to me was I really started to put a lot of stock and trade into the people that had done the treatment, right? Like the, the stories, the, the anecdotal stuff of mm -hmm. people that had gone through that treatment to say, like, if something had a ton of people who'd said, this really helped me, to me, that was, that became more important than, than a doctor saying it because it was like, okay, at least there's no incentive behind these people out there saying, hey, this stuff really worked for me. So again, the, the big question there is, how does one research what to do? <laughs> what to do? So 
It's a great question, and it leads me to ask this. So, and this is just my belief, not based on facts or whatever, but I believe there is a disinformation campaign on the internet, right? So sure. big pharma may go on and say this and this don't work and scare patients into not trying these integrative treatments or holistic treatments. Okay. Uh, there's something called uh, vitamin B17 or Luttrell. It comes from apricot seeds. Um, mm. It releases uh, cyanide inside cancerous cells. So big pharma wow. and Mayo and uh, John Hopkins and all these places will tell you it's going to kill you. But it doesn't kill you. And there's whole... Um, communities that take this that live in different countries and they're cancer free and it kills cancer and it's activated by an enzyme in side only cancer cells called beta uh, glucosidase it's an enzyme that activates it to turn it and kills cancer cells that one in particular you know is all over the internet you're going to find information on both sides of people that use it say it works cured my cancer and the medical system saying, if you take this, you're going to die. It's going to kill you of cyanide. How do you, what do you believe? I don't know. I know personally that, you know, Liz is taking it. I know other people that have taken it. Nobody's died from it. But the medical system itself is going to try to get you to believe that it is poisonous and it will kill you. So to your point, I don't know other than trying to get evidence of people that have taken it that whatever yeah. medication it is that it's not killing them can i ask you to so that that term evidence-based is one that in my estimation has become completely corrupted like i don't even yes. put any stock and trade in when people say <laughs> no. evidence-based i'm like to me it's almost it almost turns me off to things because mm -hmm. all i hear for better or worse is profit-based i hear yes. big pharma-based it's like, I don't give a fuck about, which is terrible because I'm a very empirical person. I believe in like the scientific method. You know, there's a lot of people trashing science out there. I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's be able to distinguish between science as a method of inquiry, meaning we're going to we propose a theory, we're going to test that theory, and then based on the outcome, figure out if our theory was correct. Like to me, that, like, that's a good idea. But science as a kind of, again, in industry with fallible people who have their own egos and motivations and things like that is a completely different scenario. But that's where I see that term now residing. That sort mm -hmm. of evidence-based thing is like, well, yeah, but whose who's evidence? What was the profit motive behind that? I mean, you know, so it's like, can we... Is any of that stuff trustworthy at this point? I mean, some of it has to be, right? It's a great question because these studies can be skewed and the evidence can be based off a predetermined outcome. Yeah. Right. 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 They, we know this. They skew these things so they can get the outcome they want to call it evidence-based and charge you a lot of money. The things that we use outside the country come from all around the world. Um, Sunavera comes from Asia, Helixer from Germany and Western Europe. Um, and I can go on and on.
but the the key is they're not expensive. They work. The the evidence is there. They've been used in these countries for years. But the FDA won't allow them in our country because they can't make any money off of them. They're inexpensive. And so I think this, it's so hard. It's like a minefield as you're researching and trying to find things for your health or for your loved one's health. And especially if you don't have a medical background to weed through the the BS that's spewed out there with these studies that are possibly skewed or not. I don't know. And yeah. um, I'm with you on the whole evidence-based thing. <laughs> it's frustrating. It's so tough because getting back to like patriotism, right? We love our country and we want to believe that that our country at a macro level is doing what's best for its citizens. And, and unfortunately, there are, there are sort of big components of our society that, in my estimation, are just not doing that anymore. And, and again, and we're sort of, the whole thing about going outside the country is another one where it's, I agree with you, for the longest time, it was like, that's scary. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go do a treatment, even if it was, regardless of the country, whether it's Mexico or Germany or Switzerland or whatever, you know, it was like, well, they don't have the checks and balances. We, I mean, this is, again, this is based on nothing other than just like the sort of innate feeling we've grown up to have of like, well, they don't have all the stuff we have here to make sure that's really safe. And then you go do some of the stuff and you go, well, why the fuck don't we have this in the U S like this really works. These people are squared away. This is, (laughs) this is good stuff, right? We've been so brainwashed to believe that only the best can come from this country, especially when we're talking about the healthcare system. Yeah. And frankly, it's not true. Now, we are very good at a lot of things, you know, um, especially emergency medicine and surgery and totally. trauma and yep. all that yeah. stuff. If I'm in a car accident, I definitely want to be taken to the hospital, right? Like, Yeah. yeah. But there's so many effective treatments that are founded in other countries um, all over the world that for us to believe we're the only ones with the answer, I think is absurd. Yep. And what I'm finding is for me to believe that the only effective things are things that are FDA approved is also, I think, insane. And what I'm <laughs> finding from my own totally. experience is that the healthcare I've experienced is better outside our country than what we get here. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, so what's, what's next then for you and your family, like on this, on this journey, like, are you in a spot where, where we're making progress? Like what's the, what's the kind of next thing here? Yeah. So for Liz, she's, she's got a lot to overcome and that's the problem. And so the, the people that go out and seek treatment that have not done Western medicine actually have a better chance of survival because they're not having to overcome what the chemo did to them as well as the cancer. And so that's Liz's battle is trying to overcome because the cancer has gotten into her bone marrow and um, and affected her cell lines as well as what the chemo did to it. And so we're really trying to battle that through a number of different <laughs> treatments that affect bone metastasis. Yeah. She's got another treatment we're leaving on uh, Saturday, just the end of this week to go back down for a follow-up and treatment. She's stable. The tumors are not growing and in some cases they're shrinking, but there's a lot to overcome and it's multifactorial with her nutrition and how she's feeling and 
bone pain and that kind of stuff. I'm seeing, um, I'm seeing really, really good effects from this treatment. But the other part of it is battling, uh, how are we going to pay for this, you know, as we go? I wish we could stay down there longer, three, four weeks yeah. at a time. But, right. yeah. you know, it's, it's a lot of money. Oh, and so yeah, there's yeah. all these things that go into this, right? Yep. Um, yep. So uh, she's not working right now. She's on long-term disability. So that takes away all that money. I'm not working right now, so I can be home to take care of her. It's a loss of significant income. And then you couple that with medical bills and, and everything. And it becomes this vicious circle and you spiral the drain if you can't keep up yeah. uh, with doing all this stuff. And I think this happens across America. Uh, one, we're fortunate that I worked in medicine and I can help her. And we talked about that. Those people that don't have a medical background or a, a distinct disadvantage of even where to look to start uh, finding treatments and I, why I so want to talk on podcasts and public speaking is to share my experience and my knowledge that if somebody listens to this, Chris, and we save one life because of it, because they learned something. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. That's yeah. what I want to do. I, I need to be a, a vocal mouthpiece of there are other options out there and I, I will help you seek those out and give you every amount of knowledge that I have to help people. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. The money thing, man. I mean, that's the other part that's just so frustrating, right? It's like this, this bullshit insurance industry, which is the other industry that just makes tons and tons of money off of people to, mm -hmm. to their detriment. Right. It's mm -hmm. like, and the thing is to your point, the things that really help people aren't covered, you know, and this is true for, everyday people out there. It's certainly true. I think for veterans who are in, um, you know, certainly in some of the, the chronic illness issues and, and mental health and things like that, it's been, it's been the case for me, right? It's like the government isn't paying for that. You're a lot of the stuff I've done with my own journey, healthcare is not paying for it. And even nonprofits who have helped a lot, there's still stuff that falls outside there where it's just like, you've, you got a pony up. I mean, I've, I've spent well over hundred thousand dollars at least on my, on recovery of weirdo yeah. fucking alternative treatments and stuff, you know? Um, so, you know, I think I want to um, kind of, kind of wrap this up with a couple of things. I mean, one, I, I do want to make clear that, you know, it's really from my opinion, and I think yours as well is like, you know, all of this rallying railing is, is really in my estimation against sort of an industry, right? It is not against people that are, I mean, certainly there's bad, bad apples out there. But again, I think most doctors out there and whatever, they're, they're good people that are trying to help. Yeah. And it's just, it's this industry that they are a part of and have to be a part of a lot of times. And they're, they're just trying to make a living too and take care yeah. of their families. Right. And it's like, and I get it. Um, so I don't know what the answer is there, but I will say, man, for my own recovery from a completely different scenario from what you're going through and what Liz is going through is like taking, taking ownership of my recovery has been critical because if I just listened to doctors, the initial doctors, I would have made zero progress. Zero. That is the key. Yeah. It's a key for everybody out there. Um, and so, yeah. Anything else like on your end, man, that you want to, that you didn't get off your chest here that like you want to talk about, you think is important for folks to hear? 
there's so many specific treatments out there. That's a, probably a whole nother discussion on specific treatments. But um, I would say to people that are suffering from any chronic disease, do not lose hope. Keep faith that you will be cured, that you need to take your health care into your own hands. 80% of it is going to be cured by you and your research and being an advocate for yourself or your family member. That the healthcare providers out there, it's not their fault. They are loving, caring people that want to, you know, with a service heart that want to take care of you, but oftentimes they're put in situations where they're doing conveyor belt medicine and they don't have time. So just understand that and uh, do your research and be an advocate and, and help yourself yep. and your family members. Yep. Uh, okay. Well, um, I, I, the other thing I just would, this is kind of an aside, but I wanted to publicly acknowledge this since I have you on this podcast is you are the first person in my own journey that I ever disclosed that I was having mental health issues too. When I was still on active duty, when I was the XO of the unit over there in Germany and you were the doc and you set me on a path at least to, I mean, one, you listened to what I had to say and you did it in confidence and you referred me to a shrink on the base, right? Which is the first time I ever did that. And you, um, the other thing you expressed to me is that I wasn't alone. And I, it was, I really needed to hear that at the time. So I just wanted to thank you for that because I think it's an important message for anyone out there. And this is kind of in the mental health realm of things as much as we want to separate that from physical health. Um, you know, figuring out somebody you're, you're willing to say that to if you need to, I think is so important. And in, in my case, I was lucky enough to have a friend who was also my, the doc, yeah. <laughs> uh, who I trusted, um, to, to kind of come forward. So, so thanks for that. That means a lot to me, Chris. And it it's, was an honor to, to be there for you. Um, and for others, honestly, like us, right. That, um, we're, suffering and struggling during a very long war. Um, and that is, goes back to that Dr. Grossman book, I think would be really beneficial for a lot of people and understanding that aspect of what, you know, these circumstances we were put in. And so it's truly an honor and thank you, Chris, to yeah. be able to sit, yeah. talk to you and help you in any way. Uh, actually real quick, just with the last couple minutes here, can you just talk real quick about what you do? Cause you have a couple companies too, that are sort of supporting and giving back. And I want to, I don't want to gloss over that. Like you, you do stuff out there as an entrepreneur <laughs> on this, as if you don't have enough going on where you're, where you're giving back Thank and you. you're doing some really okay. cool shit. So when I retired out of Fort Bragg, I was in this big auditorium and had invited people for my 25 year career. But there was a lot of people missing at that point. Um, we had a lot of things that happened. Extortion 1-7 was a big one and other things. Guys were missing from the auditorium. I had an idea and I went back and I told Liz after that we were in a hotel getting ready to move back here. I said, I have an idea. I don't know what it is yet, but I have an idea. I ended up creating these two companies, Bonefrog Coffee and Bonefrog Cellars. The Bone Frog and the SEAL teams, and I'm talking to the listeners, not you, because you know what it is. Right, right. But the Bone Frog represents those guys that lost their lives in defense of our freedom. So it has a very significant meaning to us and the SEAL teams. 
and our brothers that died. And so that's why I named the companies that night. I did it with coffee and wine because they're conversation pieces and I tell stories on the back of the bags and, and so forth. Um, the companies are, are doing exceedingly well. And it's because I get the opportunity to go out and share this with people of why they exist. And, and we use part of the proceeds to give back to the foundations that support um, the families that are left behind, that continue to sacrifice the wives, the kids. Um, to me, it's my way of continuing to serve now that I'm out. It's a very meaningful thing for me uh, when I'm, you know, <laughs> struggling away doing these jobs. I think about those that gave their lives and I'm like, this is not so hard. Um, and it, it gives me that sense of purpose again now that I'm out. Yep. And you give back with these, right? Like, so I, mean, I give back the other piece of this, like you support the Navy SEAL foundation where I work yep. and, um, and I'm sure you do other, uh, nonprofit support out there as well. And so it's great. it means so much to me. Um, when you think back on your, your friends and we all know these families that are yep. continuing to suffer now that their, their dad or their uncle or brother's gone. And it hurts my heart to think about it. Um, but at least I can help them in a meaningful way. Yeah. So if people want to pick some of that up, where can they do that? So if you go to bonefrogcoffee.com or bonefrogsellers.com, you can purchase these products and it'll it'll walk you through it. Uh, we have rewards programs and we have uh, subscriptions and we have all this stuff on there that you can go on. And you'll see that, you know, the different products kind of go through some of the stuff I talked about. And we have an extortion one seven bag with the list of the guys' names on the side to honor them. And um, matter of fact, I just made one for the goat locker to honor the senior. <laughs> nice. Guys. Very cool. So we have a goat locker bag and, you know, stuff like that. So go check it out if you have a chance. Awesome. Yeah. Go buy some coffee and some wine from this this man, please. Um, in fact, if, if there were, if I, if I only had three things that I could drink for the rest of my life, it would be water, coffee, and red wine. And like, I'd be perfectly okay with just those, those three things. I can help things. you with two. Hopefully not too much red wine. <laughs> Um, cause I know it's, you know, you, you obviously don't want to drink too much of that, but, but the Healthy occasional, moderation. occasional glass of red wine is, is great. So, all right, Tim, um, thanks so much, brother. Uh, always great seeing you. Um, hopefully we'll do it in person at some point here soon and, um, give my best to Liz, please. And the rest of your family and, uh, love you, brother. Love you too. And so grateful to spend this time with you. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks, man.